turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Because you are new creatures in Christ through the transforming work of Jesus Christ, you are not destined to have to repeat the sins of your father and mother. I get that we are exposed to things and you might have to unlearn some things, but please recognize that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now within you as a new creature in Christ. You are not destined to repeat the sins of your parents. Jotham looked at what happened to his father and he said, I'm going to purpose in my heart to remain humble. I'm going to stay humble before the Lord. I don't want this to happen to me, what happened to my father. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Kings. The imagination of mankind has led to some of the most detrimental doctrines that were simply never meant to be in the Church of Christ. As an example of one of these doctrines, it's what's referred to as generational curses, which stems from the book of Exodus. In today's message, Pastor Gary reminds us of the importance of context when interpreting the scriptures for application. In our study, we learn that because of the regenerating nature of Christ within us, the idea that we're cursed to repeat the sins of our parents is simply false. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message, Principles from a Good King. The city of Jerusalem was built on a hill called Mount Moriah. It's built on a, on a mount. There are four different mounts in, in Jerusalem. The mount that the city is built on is Mount Moriah. It slopes dramatically on the southern end. And so when they built the city wall, the southern wall of the city was more naturally able to be defended because in addition to having a 30-foot wall, it was built on a 90-foot slope. So no enemy would try to attack the southern side of the city of Jerusalem because you have a 90-foot slope and you have a 30-foot wall. So you got 120 feet to try to to span, and and that's ridiculous. So enemies would typically attack Jerusalem from the north. And the reason was because when the city of Jerusalem was built, it took advantage of the natural slope of the south, but on the north it was built on the peak. So all that it had then was a 30-foot wall. There were no slopes to build the advantage of of the defense of the city of Jerusalem. So historically, when you look at ancient foreign nations that attacked Jerusalem, they always, without exception, attacked from the north. Because the northern wall was the weakest wall in the city of Jerusalem. Now with that in mind, if the northern wall is the weakest wall in the city of Jerusalem, then the northern gate 
in the northern wall is the weakest point within the entire city. And what Jotham did was when he surveyed what is our potential vulnerable spot here, he realized it's the upper gate. Because the northern wall is the weakest point, and the upper gate is the weakest point of the weakest wall. And so we're going to give our attention there, and we're going to strengthen that, and we're going to fortify that. Now, here's how it translates for me. Our lives, in a similar way, you know, are, are to be a fortified city, so to speak. But every single one of us have a weak wall, and every single one of us have a weak gate within that wall. In other words, if we were all honest, we could probably come up with one area in our lives that is the weak point that is the most vulnerable, that if we're not careful, our undoing will be that one weak entry point. And I want you to imagine, if you will, that if your life is somewhat like, you know, a fortified city, there are gates and there are different entry points and which one potentially is the weakest that needs to get your most attention. For some, it might be the eye gate, the eye gate. The eye gate was a point of vulnerability for David. It was a point of vulnerability for his son Solomon, for Samson, for a lot of people. It's the reason why Job would say in Job 31 verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. But the gate of the eyes is not just a gate that is potentially weak and related to the area of lust. It could also be related to the area of covetousness. You know, you have your eyes and you look and you see things that don't belong to you and you want them or envy. You see things that that other people have that you don't think they should have that you feel entitled to have. And so the eye gate can be a potential vulnerable entry point that we have to strengthen. Remember, the fall of humanity started with the eye gate. In Genesis 3, 6, it says that when the woman, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The, the, the fall of humanity first started with the eye gate. She saw. By the way, some people have asked, you know, why is it that God put that one tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and said, don't eat of this one tree, you're free to eat of all the other trees, but don't eat of this one tree, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The death process will begin. Why did God have to do that? Why didn't God just say, eat them all, and everything's good? Here's the reason. God put that one tree there because he wants a relationship with us to be based on love, not on law. He doesn't want us to be robotic or just, you know, mandated. So, so here's what you get to do, and so just do it. No, he, gives, he plants that one tree to offer his choice because when we have choice, we have the freedom to hopefully choose him, sadly reject him, but then the relationship will be based on love in response to his love, not based on this legal requirement that you were now just, you know, robotic in your relationship. So that's the reason he put it in there. But the downfall of humanity began with the eye. And it is the reason why Jesus is very harsh in his term concerning the potential for the eye to be a sin issue for us. When he said in Mark 9, 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Wow. That's some serious language. Now, please, Before you run home and take out spoons and start plucking out your eyeballs, 
Okay, he's not speaking literally here, okay? If it were literal, then all of our ushers would look like pirates. <laughs> Arg, you want a bulletin? Arg, here's a seat for you. But anyway, and then they would say to me, and you wouldn't have either eye, Pastor Gary, but that is true. But he's not speaking literally here. How do we know? Because listen, if, I ask you honestly, if you were to take out both of your eyes, would that remove the problem of lust? No, because lust is a heart issue. The eyes are just the gate to the heart. What Jesus was saying there was not something literally. He was speaking with hyperbole. He's saying with exaggeration. Listen, deal seriously with this potential to wreck your life. Recognize the weakness and the vulnerability of the eye gate. There may be a weakness in your life related to the ear gate. Where you love to hear things. And you, and you give place to rumors. And you, and you listen to gossip. And you entertain lies. And you love flattery. And you feed on that. And the things that you hear and that you listen to. And maybe it's what you don't listen to. Because remember, Jesus indicted his own generation because, because he said, you are ever hearing but never understanding. You hear, but you're not heeding. And even the people of Jesus' day, he says, listen, they're hearing the truth, but they are rejecting it, and they are deliberately, intentionally turning a deaf ear to the truth. It's not just what we hear, it's what we don't hear that could potentially be the weakness of our lives. Maybe it's the mind gate. Maybe your struggle is your thought life, where you, you, you seem to, to let run impure thoughts or vengeful thoughts or hateful thoughts or prejudicial thoughts or prideful thoughts or angry thoughts and you and you're just allowing your mind to just kind of do whatever it wants to do it and let me just say here at this point that there are some people who incorrectly think that I can think whatever I want as long as I don't act on it all sin is not simply action sometimes it can be attitudes and that is the reason why Paul urge, urges us in 2 Corinthians 10:5 to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Because our thought life, sin generally originates in the mind first. And then we act on it. And if we don't rein in our thought life, then we have a greater tendency then to act on those things. And that's why also in Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, it says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. And, and it's also the reason why Paul would write in Philippians 4, 8, and I love this because this is great advice for people who have a hard time reigning in their thoughts he says okay let me give you a good list here of what you should be thinking on okay so philippians 4 8 he says finally brothers whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable whatever is praiseworthy or excellent think on these things so we need to focus our minds on the things that are true and lovely and noble and praiseworthy and excellent and right and, and rein in our thought life. Harness those thoughts because maybe our mind can be that gate that is a weak entry point where we're most vulnerable. So what he did here was he strengthened that which was weak. And I think it's a good in principle reminder to us to assess the weak areas of our lives and to give special attention to those vulnerable places and strengthen those things, strengthen those areas. The second thing that we see in his life here is that he humbled what was proud. And for the rest of this, you can go to Second Chronicles 27 again. Second Chronicles 27. 
And I want you to notice here in verse 2 that we read earlier what I mean by how he humbled what was proud. Because in verse 2, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. And then the account here in Chronicles adds, but unlike him, unlike his father Uzziah, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Okay, so what is that about? Well, here's a quick synopsis of his father. We'll talk more about King Uzziah when we get into the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, but here's a quick synopsis of who he was. Very successful king, listed among the good kings. There's an asterisk after his name, but listed among the good kings. He ruled for 52 years. That's almost three times as long as what his son Jotham will rule. Uh, very prosperous. He built towns. He, he built towers. He cultivated the agriculture and expanded that. He expanded the military. Uh, he built cisterns, dug cisterns. The, the guys reign very prosperous, very powerful, and the, the kingdom of Judah flourished under the reign of King Uzziah. But the problem is that after 52 years, or somewhere just before that, he got so full of himself that all of his power went to his royal head. And so as the king, he started doing things that the king had no business doing. And the primary thing that he did that was so grievous against the Lord was he acted like a priest. And one day he walked into the temple of the Lord and he acted like a priest. He took uh, incense and he burned it on the altar of incense. And he functioned in the role of the priest, which was only exclusively the right of those who were of the priestly line and who had been anointed as priests. And he goes in there, he just kind of does whatever he jolly well pleases, and he's burning incense to the Lord, and the priests all come in, and they're like, what do you think you're doing? He's like, what does it look like I'm doing? Like, it looks like you're burning incense to the Lord. That's exactly what I'm doing. Well, you shouldn't be doing that. You're not a priest. Well, I'm the king, and I can do whatever I jolly well want. And as he's saying all this, the Bible says he goes into a rage with the priests. As he's saying all this, the Bible says that the Lord struck him with leprosy, and it breaks out on his forehead. And the priests are looking at him. They're like, this is not going to be a good day for him. <laughs> and so they hustle him out of the temple and they put him in his own house and he lives in seclusion for the rest of his life. The last, give or take, seven years of his life. That's what happens. And the reason that happened, if you look at Second Chronicles 26, verse 16. Uzziah became powerful and his pride led him to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord. It was his pride. His pride led to his downfall. He was a good king right up until the end there. And then he did something that he shouldn't have done and leprosy breaks out. And so the last seven years of his life, he lives in seclusion, won't see daylight again in his own little house. And Jotham, his son, saw what happened to dad and vowed, I'm not going to repeat that. I'm going to stay humble. I'm going to humble myself before the Lord, and I'm not going to do what my father did. Please hear me on this. You do not have to repeat the sins of your father. You are not destined to repeat the sins of your mother. This whole nonsense about generational curses, I get so tired of hearing that kind of a thing through the body of Christ. It is nonsense, 
okay? It is based on this one, well, two verses out of Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, that have to do with the second commandment about idolatry. And it says that if you violate the second commandment of idolatry, God says, I will visit punishment upon the third and fourth generations for the sins of their father. Understand context. Context is everything. In those days, three to four generations lived under one roof. What God is saying is, when the spiritual head of that house violates and rebels against me, there will be consequences in that household. That is not a curse for generations to come, where now you are destined to repeat the sins of your parents. And people then conveniently, who embrace the doctrine, false doctrine of generational curses, conveniently live out, leave out the next verse in Exodus 20, verse 6, which says, and he will visit love upon a thousand generations to those who obey him. All of a sudden, we've excluded, well, three or four generations. You're destined to repeat, and you're going to be just like your father. You're going to be just like your mother. And what happens is people who embrace that nonsense have given more power to their earthly fathers than their heavenly father. Because you are new creatures in Christ through the transforming work of Jesus Christ, you are not destined to have to repeat the sins of your father and mother. I get that we are exposed to things, and you might have to unlearn some things. But please... Recognize that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now within you as a new creature in Christ. You are not destined to repeat the sins of your parents. Jotham looked at what happened to his father and he said, I'm going to purpose in my heart to remain humble. I'm going to stay humble before the Lord. I don't want this to happen to me. What happened to my father? Humility is an important thing in our lives. And even though Jotham will not have the, the same kind of prolific and prosperous reign as his father Uzziah had, Jotham will die with something that his father did not. Jotham will have integrity, dignity, and humility. Uzziah lived in a, a secluded life, a shameful life, in a house all by himself. That's his legacy. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be successful and be a person of integrity, humility, and dignity. But what I am saying is that at the end of your life, it is more important that you die with good character than good accomplishments. And that's what sets Jotham apart from his father. Number three, the last point is this, that he did what was right before God. Now, both 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 27 say that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But in 2 Chronicles 27 here, in verse 6, it tells us that he took it a step further. He didn't do just what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He took it a step further. And verse 6 says that Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. And please note with me that there is a correlation here between the success that Jotham experienced and his relationship with God. But it specifically says here that he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. What exactly does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, it is hekin derachav. Hekin derachav translates literally to fix, fasten, or establish a road. Now, in the context, the road that we're talking about here is his course of life. So it literally translates that what Jotham did, more than just doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, it literally translates, he fixed the course of his life on the Lord. When it says he walked steadfastly, it means he fixed his course of life on the Lord. 
which means that the Lord was the immutable, immovable standard by which he made decisions, choices, decided relationships, ambitions, goals. It was all fixed on the immovable standard of who the Lord is. And then let me illustrate it this way, using this stand here. If, if the stand is a picture of God's standard of what is right and wrong, his truth, his immutable immovable standard. What Jotham did was he charted the course of his life fixed on the Lord. He walked steadfastly. So everything about his life revolved around whatever the standard of the Lord was. And it shaped his life. He made decisions that way. He made choices that way. His relationships, the way he governed, everything about his life was fixed on the immovable standard of who God is. Now, let me tell you a dangerous thing that is happening in our culture and even more sadly in some circles of the church. We have now decided somehow that the standard of God is no longer immovable, it's movable. And so now what happens is that in our culture, what is trending is And even in some circles of the church, we're just going to kind of move further away. We're going to drift away from the standard. And then we'll make it movable to kind of float with us. So if this is where we're living, we're going we're to move the standard here. And now if we're way over here, we're going to move it over here. And so what happens is now we've made the standard immovable. But God has never moved. We have. And, and what we need to understand is what Jotham did was he said, No, 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 I'm going to set the course of my life on the Lord, and He is the one who is going to be the standard by which I adjust my life. What we're doing now is we think God's going to adjust around what we want to do. And so we start living and redefining what is right and wrong and do what we want to do, and then we think somehow God's just going to kind of accommodate that. Okay, we're the ones that have drifted. God has not. The standard of God and what is true and right is immovable. It is immutable. And we're the ones that have drifted. It's kind of like this. It's like When you go to the beach, okay, and you're out in the waves and you're hopping the waves and you're enjoying your bobbing in the ocean and you got your friends and family around you and you're you're a half hour in the water and then all of a sudden when when you decide, well, let's go ahead and get out now and you look back at the shore and you're like, who stole our blankets and our umbrella? Because somebody came and stole our stuff. Who would have done that? And you start getting all hyper about it and then you realize, oh, oh, it's way down there. Well, it didn't move. You did. But, you, but the slow bobbing, you didn't even realize it, and all of a sudden now you've drifted. This is what is happening, folks. Listen, please, especially the younger generation, hear me on this. There is a lie that is being spoon-fed our generation, and particularly the younger ones, that God's truth is not absolute. It changes, it shifts, it gets redefined. And that as the culture changes, so should our standards. That's not true. God has a perfect standard for us of what is right and wrong. And he wants his best for us. We don't have the right or the privilege to just start redefining things. So what we need to be about is what Jotham was about. We fix our course of life on the standard of God, and then we adjust, we constantly monitor our lives and realize this decision is wrong and this choice is right and this thing is... Because we're always moving to keep it centered on God. We don't expect him to move or the standard to change to accommodate us, we change and revolve around the standard of God. This is what Jotham did. He realized, I'm going to fix the course of my life on the Lord, and I'm going to live to please Him. He strengthened what was weak. He humbled what was proud. 
and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And may God help us to do the same. Amen. We're glad you joined us today as we follow Israel's tumultuous history in the book of 2 Kings. We continue to discover important passages such as Elijah passing on the mantle of prophecy and leadership to Elisha and see God continue mighty works through his prophet. Great and wondrous signs were done in this time, and yet the kings of Israel and Judah did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. Their disobedience has resulted in invasion, defeat, and exile. Even there, God showed up, remaining faithful to his people and not allowing them to be completely destroyed. We love walking through the story of God's people with you and would love to connect with you even more. We meet together every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. But if you can't join us there, feel free to sign up for our podcast or download our mobile app. You'll find links to both of these online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also find additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word, as well as more information about Cornerstone Connection. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you tune in again as Pastor Gary continues to teach through 2 Kings on the next edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know